So how do people make sense of this? We've got all these lessons, you know, good and bad that have been learned over the years that are now going to fuel the rise of this industry. How do you decide the right project or if it is a, a good and, you know, the right level of project for you? I mean, I think you've got to have some experience in the project within the group of companies that are going to work together and operate this. You've got to have some experience that comes from the energy sector because you've got to have somebody there, especially when you're talking about the early projects, the ones that are coming in the next five or so years, they have to succeed. I would be wary of any project where the companies that are being arranged and sort of working together in partnership don't include an energy company, a really hydrocarbon energy company, with some experience of injecting fluids in the ground. The other part of it would be a lot of people are asking about, you know, can we can we just not store the CO2 immediately underneath the um, the capture site? Um, surely there's there's just rocks underneath us. One of them can take the CO2. It's easy. If I was somebody investing in a project or becoming part of a project, if the storage site appears to be immediately below the uh, the capture site, uh, I would certainly ask questions about. Uh, really? <laughs> that sounds quite um, that sounds quite serendipitous. Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And today I am joined by Malk Kent, who is the global CCS strategy head for CGG. And Malk has joined me, well, basically to address some of the ongoing and you know, most common industrial questions around CO2 transport and storage. So we're bringing into this some of the questions we hear in our membership and some of the things that Malk hears most from clients. And uh, that's what we're going to dive into. So Malk, before we get going on the actual content, do you want to just give a bit of a kind of intro to yourself and how you've arrived at this point in time? Like, how did you come to work in the CCS space? Uh, great, thanks. So um, yeah, uh, welcome to everyone listening in. Um, so that's a really good question. And um, I think actually I'll preface the answer by, um, by explaining that I feel like on the outside, it can be a bit cryptic as to how people get to work in, um, in CCS. Um, there aren't that many jobs out there sort of posted um, you know, publicly. And um, I think it's a fair question to say who's working in this space and, and why they're working in this space. So I can talk uh, really specifically from the perspective of carbon storage. So the S in CCS. So for me, I've been in the industry around about 21 years now, and I started in a pretty conventional way. And I think this really probably is for anybody that wants to work in the storage side of things. I think it is really the best place to start in terms of an apprenticeship, and that is to start in the hydrocarbon exploitation industry. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, I started in production. Um, so my first uh, five years in the industry, I worked for a super major uh, energy company in very sort of connected company um, globally. And I was able to really learn kind of the, um, and I learned my craft in just understanding how you inject uh, fluids into the subsurface and how you extract them out of the ground again. Um, so I was very fortunate. Somebody said to me, um, you know, don't go and uh, do the um, do the really uh, fun stuff and go and work in exploration. Um, go work and do do like the graphs, you know, work in production, which is the daily kind of grind. And um, and that really benefited me a lot. So a lot of skills that I have today that I use in carbon storage came from those early days. Um, I'm working a lot of assets. I think something like 15 or 16 assets in four years, which is really rare in in a hydrocarbon um, operating company. You'd normally stay on one for quite a long time. So I was able to see how we could produce oil, produce gas, and then to the end of producing water as well. 
how you can inject uh, water to help things, how you can inject gases like CO2 to help with what you're doing. Um, and span different uh, disciplines. So I worked in geology, geophysics, reservoir engineering, drilling, and that side, all of which are really important to CCS. Um, and then it's really around about um, 12 years ago that I had the first sort of intro to to working uh, with carbon storage. And um, I was looking at some uh, carbon storage potential in Western Canada at that time, so that's onshore. Um, just looking at the feasibility, really, where was with certain geological um, formations, you know, units of rock um, capable of storing large amounts of CO2 within the right location, that kind of thing. And then a few years after that, I worked in um, California on shore, and they had a slightly different angle. They had a lot of old fields, old oil fields in particular. Um, and my task was over a period of time to look at where some of these old fields that come at the end of their life were um, potentially viable for storing large amounts of CO2 as well. And then really the last uh, three years, for me personally, in a career perspective, things have accelerated quite dramatically. I think that's true for the industry around um, CCS. It's all accelerated pretty dramatically in the last few years. Uh, so 2022 was a year where I worked on lots of projects, both hands-on and also advising and consulting on opportunities as well. Um, and then last year, uh, I took on a slightly different role which was more about um, they see how uh, different components of a CCS project come together, um, how my company could add value, um, a bit more strategically, which led me to where I am uh, today. So I guess a roundabout way of saying initial uh, hydrocarbon, um, yeah, oil and gas industry backgrounds, transitioning over the last 12 years to uh, things outside of that, CO2 has really become the prominent one for me personally over the last few years. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned the the experience in Western Canada and California. Before we came on air, you were talking about Middle East. I mean, this is clearly a very global business, a global role for you at the moment. Just, I mean, we'll talk about this a little more later, but where, where are you spending most of your time in terms of geography right now? Uh, I think that's probably um, somewhat reflective of, you know, what what we see in the industry. There's there's certain countries in the world today that have forged ahead, and um, and they got going several years beyond the others that'll catch up in the future. So that kind of dictates a little bit where I'm looking. And and people listening to this probably won't be surprised to hear where some of those places are. Uh, Northern Europe is a key player, um, reforging ahead in certain countries. Norway, of course, is sort of top of the list. Uh, Norway already has experience with two very important projects that have been storing CO2 for some time. Uh, North America, we mentioned that already, you know, really prominent. But Asia-Pacific is really uh, getting there quite quickly. Um, there's countries that already uh, got all, away from the starting line and they're already making progress. So those would include places like Malaysia, which is forging ahead. Uh, we also see Thailand, Nanao. Um, we start to see... There's been the recent announcement in Japan. They've got several projects there that they're pursuing. Um, and then Australia, you know, we can't forget about Australia. They've had a, a very long-term offshore project that's been storing CO2 for some time, several years. And they've got all sorts of projects in Australia coming through in the pipeline too. So those are the areas of the world that really kind of take up the focus right now. You mentioned the Middle East. Uh, I was in the Middle East just last week and there's various discussions around, you know, the key projects in the Middle East. They tend to be a bit different because in the Middle East, 
you've got you've got individual players in certain countries that really control and pull the strings. They're very dominant in those countries, um, and you've got very dominant countries. So Saudi Arabia, for example, and the Emirates, Oman. They're very they're very key sort of countries, and Qatar as well. I should mention, and um, yeah, so the Middle East is something that's coming in in the future. And there is a project already in Qatar. There's a what we call the advanced recovery project on shore um, Abu Dhabi. But in terms of long-term, big-scale carbon sequestration, there's some projects coming in the long-term future. Yeah. Okay. And then just, again, for context more than anything, much much as with your own personal intro, CGG's work in this space, how, how would you characterize the work? You know, what's the lens that you're bringing to this conversation? And then we'll dive into the questions from industry. Yeah, and so for us in CTG, we're quite an old company, actually. We're 92 years old now today. So we've actually been in and around the energy industry for a very, very long time. So uh, it wasn't really that CGG came from outside CCS, saw an opportunity and came into the market. Uh, It was more organic than that. We were already operating uh, in this space and operating alongside the key companies who who were looking at CCS anyway. So almost um, more by default, we we uh, started to work on some projects that had a CCS um, um, connection to them. And then we've looked at that and said, okay, this is something that's going to grow. So for us, what we are traditionally best known for in the past, if I was to put a, like a single stamp on, on CDG, um, it's, our, it's our ability really to take complex data, quite huge amounts of data really, and uh, process it and transform it. So take it from a bunch of uh, raw data, you would understand what it meant. Uh, it's just something you can visually look at and see and interpret. And primarily for us, that's been seismic data because we have a lot of um, computing horsepower in the company. And so seismic has always been tradition, very, very computer intensive to try and process it. Uh, but we've expanded since then to process all kinds of different types of data. And um, of course, we you know, developed a lot of people developed in the machine learning AI space uh, before you know it, and you're um, transforming or interpreting all kinds of data then using machine learning um, tools. Uh, and what we're really doing today in the CCS space is we're trying to join up the components, the subsurface components, what we call kind of integrated geoscience, and, um, uh, and then sort of walk through the life cycle from what we'd say initial screening to site characterization to planning to operations and monitoring, um, offering services that support anybody trying to develop a CCS um, project in a CCS site. Um, so yeah, so we still around our com- core of, of um, geoscience to, um, to reservoir, what we call reservoir study. Um, if I was going to say one thing um, as a sort of takeaway, I think that the monitoring space is really where the interesting things are going to happen in the future. How do you monitor a CO2 storage site over 20 years to 50 years plus? And that's that's a big focus for us. Uh, we already have experience there. It's like, you know, we should be doing something really meaningful here. So that's a big, big talking point at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's dive into um, the industrial lens on CCS. I mean, no matter what you read at the moment, you'll see uh, all kinds of questions and sort of discussions ongoing about what role CCOS can or should play in decarbonisation. But 
you know, from our members' perspective, most of them don't see a route to true decarbonisation, true net zero without something of the potential scale, you know, as a solution of CCS. But they still have questions. So we've picked out a couple just to start with, and we'll see where we go from there. But the first one, which is, you know, in a lot of people's minds, is what do we really know about safety and security of long-term underground storage? And I think some, I think this is one of those questions that sort of feels like it ebbs and flows and then rears its head again. And every time people think they've got the answer they needed, something, I don't know, either a project uh, example rears its head or something else happens. But what what's your sense of this? Because it's a valid area of concern. We're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, ideally, of storage of this uh, waste material, waste as it, it's seen in this context. So what's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, um, to sort of unpack that a little bit, you're absolutely right, actually. Um, a lot of the, um, in terms of criteria threshold, a lot of people nowadays use sort of a thousand years as the sort of, um, uh, the kind of aiming uh, mark for, you know, what do you want to prove in terms of safe storage? Um, it's, it kind of doesn't make any scientific sense to go build a thousand years, but so uh, we generally sort of look at that. We look at, you know, hundreds of years, as you mentioned, up to a thousand years. Can we, can we demonstrate things are, are safe? Um, so I'll sort of start off by saying, so we have existing projects that have been operational up until today, and we can learn a huge amount about those challenges from those projects. They give us real hands-on learning where there's been injection of CO2 at reasonable scale, reasonable volume for a significant amount of time. Um, then we can also sort of pull on what we've learned from the hydrocarbon industry. That's a huge, huge wealth of data you know, from around the world, but it's not specific to injecting CO2 necessarily. So um, you're absolutely right. There are valid concerns around it. Um, and not all of the projects that we've had up till today in armor storage have been 100% successful. Um, so just to mention kind of a few and kind of break down into some examples. So we have uh, had 13 projects uh, till today that have uh, stored CO2 for the purpose of long-term storage and sequestration. And one of those has, has shut down, so it's not operational today, so that leaves us with 12. Um, so I just pick on a few of these sort of projects um, as examples. So some have had issues and some have not had issues and have done well. So it's not just a case of, okay, everything has sort of failed or everything's been successful. So that's perfect for us because when you're analyzing any kind of like, you know, um, you know, data of like what's happening in any space, if you've got successful examples and you've got failures, then you, you're learning almost twice as much. So for us, um, a couple of flagship projects in Norway, the first one is Snervik, which is up in the Barents Sea, operated by Equinor. And um, that was a relatively successful project on the face of it. Um, certainly no major issue is, you know, CO2 uh, leaking out into the sea or, um, you know, anything catastrophic happening. But one of the challenges they had there was that the original uh, volume that they thought was going to be accessible to store CO2 uh, turned out to be much, much smaller than they originally thought. And they only realized this suddenly became clear when they started injecting the CO2. And um, so there were, there had to be sort of uh, plan B, plan C in order to understand, okay, well, we need to still still keep, you know, injecting the CO2 underground. So we're going to have to find a way to inject it into a different level, for example, into a different geological formation. Um, so that's sometimes cited as an example where uh, maybe there was some uncertainty there and it wasn't initially understood before the injection happened. And then it sort of caught out the operator 
as they um, as they went forward. If we drop down to um, more central uh, offshore Norway, probably the most famous project in the world, I would imagine, and anybody listening to this has probably heard of, which is Sleipner. So Sleipner is um, uh, sort of a complex where you've got uh, hydrocarbon production happening, but then over to the um, uh, to the east of where the hydrocarbon is being produced, you've got this um, uh, CO2 injection site. Uh, and this has been a full-scale project to demonstrate that CO2 can be safely injected over long periods of time. And it's injected a lot of CO2, more than 10 million tons of CO2 has been um, injected there. And uh, and that has been, again, on the face of it, very successful. A lot of CO2 stored, uh, no really big uh, health and safety issues. But again, it was a case of um, what was thought was sort of uh, plan A or prediction hasn't quite sort of worked out that way. They've got a few surprises. Um, and as they've injected the CO2, they've realized, okay, well, um, rather than going into this layer and this layer, we're now starting to see the CO2 actually did my migrate, move vertically higher than the thought. And, and they went into some layers that were shallower than the operator Equinor thought would, the CO2 would go into. Um, now, this project injects CO2 about 850 meters um, of depth. So you haven't got a huge amount of um, space above you to allow CO2 to go shallower. So just out of interest, like normally, or when you look at the kind of other projects, uh, either in planning or around the world, what what typically are you aiming for in terms of a depth? Now, that's a really good point um, to flag. So we generally work, and we, this, this comes when we do the screening, and very, very early on in the project, and we're saying, is this even feasible? So we would generally use, as a very, very coarse rule of thumb, a depth range between... 800 meters and uh, 3,500 meters. That's generally the kind of window that we'll be working with. And we tend to sort of screen things out as being non-attractive if they're outside of that window. When you're on, on land, that's very, very straightforward because the ground surface, you, know, you have an elevation and you have a ground surface and you say, well, I'm going to uh, store more than 800 meters below that ground surface. And when we go offshore, we basically just... Um, we basically transport that offshore. We're not talking about where the, the sea surface is. We generally look at where the seabed is. Um, we call that in the industry the mud line. And below that, we're looking at can we have 800 meters of rock before we start injecting the CO2. Um, the reason for it technically is we want to store the CO2 in what we call a dense phase gas. So we want to steal some of the properties of a liquid but maintain some of the properties of the gas. It's like the ultimate sort of win-win situation. And we can do that um, without getting into technical details. We can do that when we push the CO2 down deep enough, so more than 800 metres. Uh, when we go below 3,500 metres, um, just if anyone's interested, what we generally find is that the, the rocks, uh, not everywhere, but just as a general rule of thumb globally, that the rocks that we're looking at will often often uh, be so compacted and so altered that they don't possess the properties, the ideal kind of properties that we want in order to flow the CO2 through them and then store the CO2. So generally speaking, we're in this depth range of uh, 800 to 3,500. So sorry, I, I kind of interrupt your flow. We were talking about the Sleipner project and that they'd seen some, some things that they hadn't been prepared for, but that's still in operation and has been worked around, right? I mean, I, I think, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so it's still in operation today with, um, again, no real serious issues. Um, it's just purely, it's really kind of this um, prediction versus sort of um, 
ultimate reality. Um, we like to, uh, in any of these spaces, whether it's hydrocarbons or CA2 storage, we like to be close to prediction if we can. It makes us feel comfortable if um, if we're somewhat accurately predicting uh, things. So um, when there are surprises, then it does raise an eyebrow. Yeah, I think also in the creation of a new market like this, right? You know, you sort of it's all part of your uh, social license to operate that things are are staying within those those parameters as described. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's going to become more and more more and more for pressure in the future. People are going to really expect that um, that we really are close to prediction in the future. And I should caveat these examples that we're talking about, so Sleipner and Snurvit already. Um, uh, it's only fair to sort of say that these projects really were kind of um, trailblazers. So we're talking about projects really in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where um, people weren't really that interested in carbon storage. And certain companies were sticking their neck out and saying, actually, we're going to investigate this, we're going to have a go at this. And they really had no template. They had no past history to... Um, to Put you know bounds on exactly what they were going to um, develop. So, um, so that that context we, sh- we should always bear that in mind. Of course, when we look at these examples, is um, we have more knowledge today. Those are really kind of generally early trailblazing projects. But as an example, I just can jump on to um, a project uh, in uh, Algeria, which I think is probably the project that we have learned the most from. Um, it's really the most significant um, in terms of. Um, learnings of what we want to do in the future. And that's a project that we call Kretschber, or it's sometimes called Insala. Um, so it's central Algeria. So this is now onshore. The previous two were um, were offshore marine examples. And um, the the background to this was that the uh, operating companies, so that's Equinor, BP, and Sonatrack, they, um, they were producing CO2, um, significant amounts of CO2, out of their hydrocarbon gas production uh, from this cluster of uh, gas fields. And um, credited for this particular field, um, produces CO2, and they had to do something with the CO2. It wasn't acceptable to just keep venting the CO2 and just let it go eventually into the atmosphere. Um, so they looked at, again, trailblazing projects, and they looked at, can we reject the CO2 um, pretty close by, so in the nearby vicinity, and inject it into the water that sits below the hydrocarbon gas they're producing? And so uh, this... Project came on stream in 2004, and um, it was three wells that they drew, or horizontal wells, and then they, they start injecting the CO2. But unfortunately, relatively early on, they start to see that the CO2 um, injection isn't behaving as they predicted. And um, uh, I won't go into sort of technical details, but they, they pretty quickly saw that something had gone wrong. And um, the project was, um, was shot in, and some things were done, then it was brought back on stream. Eventually, in 2011, it was shut down completely. And um, what we found, and it was myself and some other guys that worked on it, the CO2 basically uh, leaked up into the uh, um, into the shallow rocks, um, significantly shallower than the, uh, than the uh, interval where you're supposed to be storing. And then it sort of moved around laterally in that area. Um, and really, this, this basically breached what we call containment, um, the this kind of boundary on the top is supposed to hold the CO2 in, and this hadn't happened here, would sort of breach through that. So it's a great example of Kretschmer of, you know, uh, and I think today it's the only example where there has something has seriously gone wrong. The project had to be shut down, could not be operated anymore, um, and the CO2 did not stay where it was supposed to stay. 
And was that when you think about what well, doesn't just have to be that project, but when you think about the projects and the learnings so far, have the learnings been, have they indicated more that maybe different types of data is needed? Or was it indicating more, actually, there was more in the behavior of this gas once injected that perhaps we hadn't understood? How would you characterize like all these lessons learned that are now going into future projects? What, how would you characterize really the kind of main areas of learning so far? Yeah, I think there's um, maybe it could be dumped into two key, two sort of overall categories of of how you learn from this. So the first one is to do more work upfront um, and to be uh, be a little bit more kind of um, cynical about you know what type of um, rocks you can really use. So in these early days of these early projects, um, there were a, sort of a few uh, marginal um, decisions that were sort of taken. And it was like, well, well, we'll explore. You know, we'll see if this works. And I think today, in hindsight, you're going to say, well, no, that's not even going to be feasible. We're not even going to go too too risky. Um, so I think that there's there are upfront learnings um, before you start injection. You know, doing more um, work on modeling in three dimensions, what you think is going to happen, how you connect these various models that you produce together. They all have to work together, um, not in isolation. So generally, there is more planning work required, and I think you'd you wouldn't go near some of the kind of the fifty-fifty uh, injection sites. I think today they would just be no go, and you go to something that you had real confidence, like this is very very good as a place to store CO two. The other uh, tranche of learnings, um, and this connects to actually one of the really successful projects. So to contrast what I've been talking about so far, if we jump across to Canada, to Alberta, there's a project there in running since 2015 called Quest, that Shell's kind of flagship CCS project. And that hasn't had any real problems. So that has um, that has essentially injected CO2, large volumes, eight, nine plus million tons of CO2. And, um, and it's been a really good example of how you can manage a storage site um, and, um, and, and have no issues. And so uh, this comes back to this learning of, of how you monitor. So one of the issues they had with Critchburg, um, there were certain types of monitoring that weren't actually in place when they started in 2004. They got to 2009 and then they put that in place. But by then you'd already done the damage. It was already five years in. One of the interesting things about uh, Quest is they had a reverse kind of policy, which I think, you know, from everything that I've seen is the way to go in the future. Um, which is to really kind of be belt and braces to begin with, with how you're going to monitor what's happening during injection C2. And then over time, as they've learned, they started pulling things out and saying, well, we don't need that because we've now got years of evidence that says we don't need that anymore. And then you kind of scale back and you kind of make it a bit leaner and a bit leaner. And that's a really smart way to do it because you're driven by data, you're driven by insight. So when you're, when you're pulling something out and saying, well, that costs us too much money, let's just get rid of that. You've got a reason why. So that that was a it's a it's a brilliant case study um, quest of you know how to do that, and and it's interesting because I've had some discussions sorry with them um, people in different parts of the world, and there's really two camps today I find of people uh, people's opinions on carbon storage. There's, there's some people who sit in one camp and say, um, you know, we've got to be really careful here. You know, we we represent the CCS industry. We've got a flagship project. Nothing can go wrong. If something goes wrong, goes into the public domain. And we can basically kind of crash and burn an entire industry if we're not careful. And then you've got a whole other camp of people who are looking at it and saying, well, it's just, we just put a well in the ground. 
inject something and walk away. It's easy. I mean, <laughs> how hard can this be? So there really seem to be two two camps of um, people that you talk to. And I think uh, the first camp is, is obviously the conservative way. Um, it has its issues because you're going to spend more money. And not everybody in the CCS industry is going to want to spend that money or can spend that money. So it's kind of a luxury if you can. But that is really the better way to do it. You really run up quite a high risk if you're going to be in the second camp and say, well, from day one, we're going to do this. We're going to do this as lean as we can. I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. So if you now now imagine, you know, one of our members or many of our members on on the other side of this market, so not the people doing the do, not the people imagining what's but the people who are looking for that solution, how like how should they know how to evaluate, you know, one project versus another? How what should they be asking for? Or I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole series of podcasts on this, but are there any headlines that you could give like this is the thing you know these are the questions or this is the data like for you to evaluate i mean obviously some projects are going to come with enormous global brands attached and you maybe make some assumptions based on that other projects will come from wholly independent outfits that doesn't mean that they're necessarily better or worse because people have skills from previous experience you know how so how do people make sense of this we've got all this less all these lessons you know, good and bad that had been learned over the years that are now going to fuel the rise of this industry. How do you decide the right project or if it is a, a good, and you know, the right level of project for you? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. And I think you're absolutely right. I I can sort of dive into it and have a go at it. And it's probably something that, yeah, we could talk about for a long time to a lot of different people. Um, I mean, I think you've got to have some experience in the project within the group of companies that are going to work together and operate this. You've got to have some experience that comes from the energy sector, that comes from the oil and gas hydrocarbon sector, um, and significant. So when I see some projects in the US, for example, and okay, you've got an emissions company, but then I see something like BP is being pulled in or Exxon's being pulled in, something like this. Okay, that's great. Because you've got to have somebody there especially when you're talking about the early projects, the ones that are coming in the next five or so years, they have to succeed. Um, you know, when we look at projects that will be in 20 years' time, that's something else. But the next five years or so, that is really critical. And so I would be wary of any project where the companies that are being arranged and sort of working together in partnership then include an energy company, a, a really hydrocarbon energy company, with some experience of injecting fluids in the ground. Um, at in, at some commercial um, scale, so um, so that would be a red flag, uh, pretty much immediately. Um, the other part of it would be um, to a lot of people are asking me about you know can we can we just not store the CO two immediately underneath the uh, the capture site? Um, surely there's there's just rocks underneath this. One of them can take the CO two. It's easy. Um, so again, I'd be sort of wary of that. If I was somebody investing in a project or becoming part of a project, uh, and if if the storage site appears to be immediately below the uh, the capture site, uh, I would certainly ask questions about. Uh, really, <laughs> that sounds quite um, 
That sounds quite serendipitous. So it's, um, uh, how much work has really been done to prove this? Um, you mentioned a, a term, you mentioned data. Now, data is king, really, because uh, knowledge is sort of power and knowledge for us comes and insight comes from data. So again, I'd be very wary of any project where somebody's moving forward and there's a storage site involved and there isn't adequate data um, in that area. So imagine that you have somewhat co-located capture and then somewhere nearby you've got a storage site, but you're, you're in a part of the world where there wasn't really any activity in the past, for example, from hydrocarbons. So that probably means there aren't a lot of wells in the ground. There aren't a lot of deep wells in the ground. You might have shallow uh, aquifer wells for drinking water and things. But um, um, when you when you have a sparsity of data, that is a real, real issue. Um, so we do see, and when I look at the projects around the world that are led by companies that really know what they're doing, um, you know, if we look at a project like Peak and Arden, which is like the flagship project for Exxon, something like Total's um, Hackberry project or Equinor's Northern Lights project, you've got real, you've got companies that really know what they're doing. These are their flagship initial projects. Um, these are in areas where there is a lot of data existing or is being collected. Um, and the only way you mitigate risks is through data. You, you must be able to directly measure things. Yeah. And I mean, so forgive me and listeners, forgive me for a, a, a question that will yet again expose my lack of knowledge in the space in which I'm working. But I mean, you know, if you buy a fuel or if you access other kind of engineering projects, everything comes with a certification. Is there like what's what's coming for the CCS market is, you know, what's in place, what's coming? What is there something that industrials should be asking for around that? Yeah, I think certification is the next sort of logical um, topic for us to get into because um, uh, what we have at the moment is we have, you know, different countries around the world at very much different stages of maturity of developing their, um, their uh, not just their economy, but um, but how they um, uh, steward the, the, the process here as well. So the US is somewhat ahead of a lot of countries around the world in the sense that they do have a, a process involved um, today, but it is, although it's there, it's by no means perfect, and it's evolving as we as we speak. Um, and that is the um, the process regulated onshore US by the EPA. Um, so they're, they're, they're the organisation sort of federally across the company that look after uh, across the country that look after this. And um, so the process there you know, very simplistically means that uh, the operating company has to do. X, Y pieces of work, um, demonstrate this, demonstrate that, and then submit all of this work to the uh, regulating body. And the regulating body will then task a team, look through all of the work it could take months. Um, in some cases, it's taken actually um, over a year. Uh, they will look and scrutinize all of this. They will go back to the operating company, ask questions. It goes backwards and forwards. And then eventually, at some point, they're going to be happy enough to say, okay, um, we think you've done everything. We think you've ticked every box. We're willing to give you a long-term storage permit. Um, that's when you start kicking off if you're the operating company, you know, operations on the ground and construction and everything else is going to happen after that. Um, so that's at the point where you get your sort of what we call our, the FID, the, the final investment decision. And, that, and that's the US. So the US is somewhat ahead. The UK is by a large as an example, adapted what it's had for the hydrocarbon industry. 
So it has um, a lot less projects to deal with than the US has. So it's a lot easier for the um, NSTA in the UK. Um, but they are shooting in pretty much the way, similar ways they did with hydrocarbons. So you first apply for a, um, an exploration license in the offshore area where you're interested. Then you have a work program that goes with that. You have to collect certain amounts of data, do this, do that. And then you have a period of time where you essentially, again, you kind of mature the project, do all your studies, and you work constantly in partnership with the NSTA. And eventually at some point, um, you're going to get to a level where you've done everything you have to do, tick the boxes, and then they're going to say, yes, you can have a storage permit or not. So this is, there are variations as you can see, but largely you're going from this, you can you can have rights to the land first and work that area first. And then some years later, after you've done all of this mitigating and uncertainty work and modeling work, you're going to be able to have a storage permit. Yeah. Okay. So, so far we've tackled what what is known about safety and security of long-term underground storage. We've talked about definitely a question which we hear about and that you do as well about can we just store on site brackets therefore not having to cough up loads of cash for the transport and i guess uh, next up is about the average cost breakdown and then we'll come come into the kind of community question after that but how do the costs of an average ccs project and i laugh because i know there is no such thing right now we have as you said 13 projects 12 in operation dozens in you know development or planning but what do we what does it look like at the moment how do the those average costs tend to break down yeah so well first i'll give a kind of high level of um as we just stepped through capture transport storage and then i can dive in a little bit more with storage to talk about what is it's actually costing money there as well so if we're at the highest level we're looking at just these three components in the in the life cycle that as we are today of course capture spans quite a different on a range of different costs, um, depending on what it, what technology you're using, what it, where you, where are you capturing the CO2, how are you capturing the CO2? So you could have something as low as sort of twenty twenty five dollars per ton CO2 um, if you're if you're using one of the, the lower cost um, uh, methods to do that, all the way up to you know two hundred plus dollars per ton of CO2. Or if you're in direct take capture, well then it could be three hundred three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, so as, just to give you an example of a benchmark, if we look at, um, so you've got a coal-fired um, power station, for example, you want to decarbonize this, you want to um, capture the CO2 coming out after combustion, then that'll probably be something in the range of $100 to $150 per tonne that's going to cost you, um, you know, in, ter- in terms of the indicative costs of decarbonizing that. So, um, so there's quite a range on the capture side as we stand today, um, transport, a much smaller range, but but then um, it becomes polarized depending on what type of uh, transport you're talking about. So we've got onshore, we can be using pipelines. For shorter distances, we can be trucking the CAT. Um, if we're in the offshore, we could be talking about pipelines, but then we're now getting into the realm of long-distance shipping of CAT. So as you can imagine, you know, as we stand today, offshore, uh, in the marine environment, that is more expensive generally than the uh, onshore lands. Um, and certainly if you've only got to send the CO2 onshore 10 miles or 20 miles, and you can do that by truck, that's actually pretty affordable, that's pretty, pretty cost effective. So anything like 10, 20, 30, 
maybe forty dollars a ton. You know, that could be kind of the range that you're working in for storage uh, for transport. Sorry, and the storage side it becomes really polarized between the offshore and the onshore. So onshore, because of the cost of drilling wells, onshore is much, much cheaper than than offshore. And uh, when you see that there are 63 projects right now in the um, in the pipeline with the EPA across different parts of the US, um, I think they represent something like 180 to 190 wells um, in those 63 projects. The, uh, part of the reason why you've got so many and it's just you know, expanded so fast is because the cost of drilling a well on short in the US is a lot cheaper than you know offshore somewhere else. So um, so that really polarizes the cost. So you might be talking about a difference between ten dollars per ton uh, in one project versus um, you know twenty five thirty plus dollars per ton in another project. Um, now there's a bit of speculation about what's going to happen in the future. I think the cost of drilling wells on shore isn't really going to change that much over the next five years. But something like shipping CO2 around the world, that is definitely going to change because that's brand new to us. So what it costs on day one is not what it's going to cost to ship X amount of CO2 in year five. So um, as we speak right now, ships are being built, soon to be commissioned, that can store um, pressurized CO2. So um, so that's going to change the costs um, somewhat. Uh, this is actually driven uh, one of the kind of methodologies around or approaches around CO2 storage, which is the hub mentality. Um, so we see certain parts of the world now are going after creating, you know, consciously from day one, they're going to create hubs, storage hubs. And um, a good example offshore is going to be this Northern Lights area, so offshore Bergen, uh, Norway. And, um, and that is going to be eventually a hub with all these kind of satellite storage areas very close together. And what makes it a hub is the fact that all of the transport will go to one place, one location. And then from that location, it will then be stored in a lot of satellites nearby in the same area. So you have all kind of cost efficiency going on because you are not, you're using the same infrastructure in and out to move the CO2. And, um, and that then again reduces the cost in the future um, a ton of CO2 moved um, on that storage side. But I think overall, when you look at the whole picture, capture, transport, storage, of course, overall costs will come down over time. That's just that's just the benefit of technology evolution. And there's no question on the capture side, it has to come down over time. So I think that's, that's pretty much guaranteed. I just quickly kind of mentioned on the storage side for anyone that's interested, because I just touched on the idea of drilling wells. That is really the major upfront cost um, associated with storage as drilling wells. Um, some projects will only use one injector well. Um, some that I've seen are using, say, three injector wells. There's a project called Meadowbrook, for example, um, near Edmonton in, uh, in Alberta, which which will start with one well, but then eventually can go to three wells. And then we're seeing some really ambitious projects, and I'll get into this maybe a bit later on, um, where we see that people are using old oil fields and gas fields to store CO2 offshore. Um, it can be onshore, but dominantly offshore. And they might have as many as 10, 12 or more injector wells in their plan. Um, so there's quite a range of different numbers of wells that you can use. But if but the, the cost of either drilling or recompleting wells is um, is one of the big kind of upfront costs. And then after that, of course, you've got the costs associated with operating the sites and uh, maintaining the equipment and doing more of them monitoring. One thing I should add as well, just a and kind of cap this off with 
is that once you finish injection, let's say you inject for 30 years, and that's that's your plan. It's just like a 30-year period. At the end of 30 years, you stop injecting and you can dismantle the uh, injector wells, things like that. But you still have to keep monitoring the site. And this will be the same all over the world. There will be this boost injection uh, monitoring period where the regulator will say, no, 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 we have to make sure nothing untoward happens before you kind of run away and disappear. So, um, and that could be 10 years. And I have heard recently, you know, some projects are looking at 20 to 30 years post-injection, still they have to do some sort of monitoring to make sure that um, the leak hasn't happened just as they've walked away from injection, injecting the site. So that does fill people with a little bit of um, sort of unease because they're like, oh, hang on a second, we're going to have to, <laughs> there's going to be some operating costs coming out here for the next, whatever it is, 50 years, 60 years. And that people get a little bit uneasy when, it, when you put money on the table for uh, a capital expenditure one-off early on, that's more past when you start telling people, we're going to have to be uh, spending this much per year. We think it's 30 years, might be 40 years, might be 50 years. Then people kind of get a little bit uneasy about that. It doesn't have a clear end point to it. No, and underpinning all of this is when you talk about those kinds of costs, for most, you know, most of the members we're talking to, for most of them, they're not going to be able to justify that business case without one of two things being true either people really being serious about paying green premium prices or um you know the world sucking up the fact that you will actually have to pay for fully loaded co2 products if that makes sense i.e that you buy cement with full load of co2 then it's going to cost you more but one or the other has to happen doesn't it because yes. that that just on top of your average tonnage of cement Yes, and I think that's what everyone's sort of banking on. Everyone knows that uh, in the early years, the government might get involved through some indirect um, you know, a sub-organisation to you sort of fund, do the funding. Um, and that's okay to get the first project off the ground or maybe the second one or maybe it's for the first five years or something like this. But um, but that will soon run out and, um, and there will be sort of a counting down of sort of the clock, if you like, to where you have to, you're going to have to make this commercial before before that funding sort of disappears and runs out. Okay, so let's just sort of lift our gaze. You talked a little bit more about the kind of, I guess, Northern Hemisphere, just because that's where more of the advanced projects, um, I guess, are, are emerging. But when you look globally, what do you see, like what, what's your sense of like the next handful of countries that are, who's moving fast, basically, is my question. Who's moving faster elsewhere in the world? And where do you expect to see comparative activity in, in the next few years? Yeah, yeah, a really good point. So, um, yeah, I think there will be some catch-up that happens, especially because um, countries like the US and um, and others have spent, have done all the kind of heavy lifting. And then now they create a blueprint for other companies to just kind of like um, do it much faster. So, um some of the countries around the world that we're looking at sort of internally, and I think are pretty commonly looked at in the industry. Um, I think it's Latin America, of course, Brazil is a country that uh, a lot of people look at. You know, it's definitely it's suddenly got enough emissions to um, to warrant um, um, quite a sizable uh, carbon storage uh, market in the future. And, um, and they have a lot of experience as well, of course, producing hydrocarbons. So, um, so Brazil is a country that we're looking at, and and I think that we will see we're starting to see some events now sort of kick off this year, 
Uh, and that's always a sign. When you start to see industry events bringing people together in a country, you're saying, well, okay, well, people are, people are caring about this now. This is, this is becoming serious. Otherwise, in Latin America, probably uh, somewhere like Colombia would be probably the other country um, um, that's also um, you know, really starting to look at doing something. In the sort of greater Asia area, I guess everybody is probably looking at, and um, and it's no real secret, of course, India has you know a huge amount of um, uh, CO2 emissions, uh, an ever-increasing population. Um, how it produces its power, its energy, unfortunately, is coming from sort of age-old sort of fossil uh, sources. So, um, so something has to be done. And um, I think to some extent we've seen in the last few years that China has really started to ramp up what it's doing. Not always obvious. Some of it sort of below the radar that you know doesn't make it to headline news. But but in the last few years, China has brought on the stream and made operational some um, CCS projects and has a lot in the pipeline that we think are going to, you know, they, they, they're going to accelerate it quite fast. They're not going to kind of mess around. They're, going to, they're really going to get to this. Now, of course, compared to what they admit, they've got a long way to go. But um, but, but I'm now starting to see that with India, um, they're starting to go down this path too um, and probably will be slightly in, in a lag state behind China. We'll, we'll embark on the same path. So this year, we're starting to see, again, events up. We're starting to see certain groups talk to other groups. We're starting to see companies make more serious moves. Otherwise, I think in um, uh, Southeast Asia, most of the countries there really have kind of got, the key players have got going. I think Indonesia is a country that um, still has some question marks over it. Again, it's got some significant emissions. Um, we hear a lot of conversations about Indonesia and potential projects there in the future. Australia has essentially kind of got going. It's it's pretty clear with how it licenses uh, acreage, how it's... Um, uh, you know, funding different projects. So, yeah, Australia is pretty well set. The only other area I'd say really is worth watching is Europe and, um, you know, what, what happens in sort of Central to Eastern Europe. So, again, we have countries with significant, I mean, they're nothing like uh, the likes of China or India, but certainly European scale significant emissions. Um, we've got countries relying on, again, coal source um, um, power generation. And they are yet to really have tangible, uh, uh, sizable CCS projects and networks, infrastructure, etc. So I think we'll see some movement in certain places in um, Central to Eastern Europe in the next year or two. Um, Africa, I don't really see a huge amount happening. I don't know. Maybe other people, um, maybe other people, uh, commentators around the world have a different view. But for what we see at the moment, um, there are some conversations. North Africa, of course, is taking the lead. I mean, the most advanced country really in Africa right now, in terms of what they're planning, is probably Egypt. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's some work being done, for example, in the, um, uh, in the Nile uh, Delta area right now. But yeah, Africa is somewhat behind. But then again, you look at emissions in Africa, it's not really the biggest place to sort of worry about too much. And then, as I mentioned, uh, Middle East is going to be very much centralized in the Middle East certain countries, certain operating companies, and they will have flagship projects. Um, one of the beauties about the Middle East is certainly with a country like Saudi Arabia, you've got a lot of land, you've got a lot of area with um, with little sort of inhabitants. You've got a good sort of um, feeling between the um, 
yeah, between the public and um, and the major organisations around hydrocarbons and the production of hydrocarbons. So a little bit like Alberta and Canada in a way, um, you don't have quite the resistance to um, building new infrastructure. And anyone that's ever watched the progress of the Neon project in um, Saudi Arabia will know that you know big infrastructure projects are not an issue to them. So I think again there won't be uh, a lot of um, sort of barriers there for them to get their leading projects up and running. The main project is going to be this East Coast Jubal project, and I think that will that'll probably um, be you know a very big size of a project when it comes through. Okay, well, look, you've given us a really good, oh, well, more than an overview <laughs> of where we are um, right now and about some of the, the answers to some of those questions that the industrials are asking. Just as a kind of a closeout, what's CGG's plan? So, you, as you mentioned, it's it's not a it's not a newbie in town. Where what do you see the next few years holding for you? And yeah, you know, what what are the plans in the team? Yeah, I think for us, and and, um, and maybe it's not entirely unique for us, but uh, we, we'll see that um, there's so much acceleration and there's so much kind of rapid growth in CCS globally now. You know, something like probably by. 2030, there'll be 250 to 300 sites becoming operational or already operational at that point. So for us, it's um, it's really, we've entered the market um, really using our core, uh, core skills, core strengths of what, what we bring to the market. And now really for us, it'll be a case of, okay, how do we kind of expand out of that? Um, how do we bring some of our other business lines into CCS um, to help add, add value? So it'll be an expansion of uh, focus area and global footprint, uh, an expansion of um, of services, and I think what we'll look to do, you know, as as, as a company would do in, in our situation, we'll look for like minded companies to work with. Um, yeah, that's a big that's a big thing for us. Is you know who's out there that that kind of um, has the same sort of intentions that we do, and we think okay, we can work together and do something really good. I think the ultimate. Um, thing that makes this exciting but also is a challenge that interests CDG a lot is that this isn't going to be straightforward it's not like producing hydrocarbons where you've just got massive margins and huge profitability and it's really, it's really quite a nice place to be this is a real challenge because you're in this kind of like uh, middle zone where you're getting squeezed from from both sides simultaneously so you've got a huge amount of cost pressure must keep the costs down but at the same time you know, you've got to stay within the regulations and you've got to operate a safe sites and you've got to store potentially more and more CO2 and uh, and it's going to get more and more complicated in this infrastructure networks in the future. So um, CGG is well-placed to sort of, you know, our whole kind of MO is to solve really complex challenges um, and bring either, you know, high-end people or technology, whatever it is to that. And I think that's what makes this interesting over the next few years is there's, I would say that the area of carbon storage is very much kind of primed for disruption right now um, because what we've brought is legacy learning and technology and ways of working from hydrocarbons that were disrupted for us a long time um, because they could get away with that. And I think for the next few years, we'll, we'll see um, that it's a, it's a good place to be if you're willing to innovate and um, and bring new ideas that can simultaneously both be highly cost-effective and really, really valuable in in what they do. So, and for us, that's just really interesting to be in that in that space. Yeah. Great. Well, 
Mark, thank you so much. That was I mean, really useful. And as I say, it's definitely hit the hot buttons that we hear from industry. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. At Jano Media, we recognise that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.